This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Hey, everybody. We're going back underwater this week with Danny Lomas. You might know Danny as Danny underscore Mako. He is one of the best underwater filmmakers that I've ever seen. I think it's the truest definition of raw nature. They had the uh, light flash before your eyes a little bit. And he just got back from a trip to Mag Bay where he was diving with whales and marlin and mahi and he's going to talk about all of that as well as so many other things diving with sharks bull sharks tiger sharks all the difference in all the different sharks on the planet and his experiences with all of that this is a fantastic conversation with a fantastic guy stick around here we go hi this is danny lomas or as some people might know me danny mako and this is the tom roland podcast danny what's up What's up, man? How are you doing? I'm doing great. Where are you today? Uh, I am in Orlando, Florida right now. Okay. I'm actually visiting my family. Um, and I've been down here helping one of my friends with uh, shark diving in Jupiter, Florida. Really? Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of sharks in Jupiter, Florida. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, as you might know, big fishing capita. There's a lot of guys out there with some really nice boats, uh, really into their fishing. And with that, comes a lot of sharks so that's where i kind of take advantage of the situation go and yeah. hang out with some of the bull sharks down there that's what you like to do definitely no yeah that's my whole uh prerogative i'm a shark guy um i love to fish and uh, i love to spearfish but my whole kind of career has been set around shark diving and photographing and videoing sharks so wow. And and how did uh, I mean? Probably you don't go shark diving on your first dive, but how do you how do you kind of get into shark diving to where you become more and more comfortable with it, and obviously to you know to the point of obsession almost uh, for you? Um, well, I started as a uh, paddy scuba diver, so when I was 15 years old, I just did the usual: go out, get your dive certifications, and uh, the passion kind of started there. I was diving. Um, as much as possible. So I grew up in England. Anytime I had the chance to go away and, and go to a dive destination, I would definitely try and scuba dive there. And then, yeah, just I think around 20 years old when I was at university, I actually met one of my professors who specialized in um, shark research. And the kind of obsession grew from that. We went and did some dives, saw some sharks down here in Florida. And then uh, another friend of mine actually ended up being in Hawaii and telling me about all the shark diving that goes on there and and kind of the the ecotourism setup that they've got yeah and and so it just kind of happened by chance I uh I took a took a flight over there spent a few months in Hawaii and I was like yep this is this is what I want to do and what part of Hawaii Hawaii do you live uh I'm on Oahu so that's uh kind of the main I would say populated island in the the chain. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I live uh, on the south shore of Oahu, but I actually work on the north shore. So north any of you guys, are, it's yeah. nice, man. I love it up there. It's really nice. I've been to Hawaii three times, and I went with my my boys 
uh, once on the way to Christmas Island, and then I took my daughter there for her senior trip, and we spent a lot of time on the North Shore. That's I, I like the feel of the North Shore. It's kind of it's kind of cool. Um, I know you yeah. know this place where they they have like uh, smoothies, and it's a good place to park, and you can surf right across the street, and they have like a smoothie bar, and then they have mm-hmm. like a, a a little surf shack there. Um, I think it's the uh, the Sunrise Shack. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You can get a good yeah. you can get a good uh, uh, breakfast sandwich there. Um, my daughter and I stopped there every day. It was it was great. I loved it. No, it, it's awesome. Yeah, and it's it's such a small community too. So I actually know the brothers who own that establishment, mm-hmm. and they're like uh, professional surfers. So they're just living the dream. They got so, a great business. And so the only yeah. time I've been there, both times was summer. And I understand that the that the surf is huge there, and that's what the North Shore is all about, right? In the winter time, is that right? Yeah, the winter time is, I would say, when the North Shore comes alive. So, when what is what are the waves? I mean, we surfed out there, and they were tourist waves, like little tiny little tiny waves for me and my daughter and my kids, uh, which was perfect in the summer. But what does that place look like in the winter? Uh, I would say it's kind of like that werewolf transformation. It grows <laughs> teeth and fangs and it gets extremely, extremely gnarly. The, um, the average day, I guess on a good surf day is going to be, you know, 10 to 12 feet barreling waves. And that's just talking about an average, you know, run of the mill kind of swell. When you get into that XL, double XL, you're talking about 20 to 30 foot faces on waves, completely, uh, you know, if you're coming out of the harbor, you're getting the channel completely covered. So you have to time it. So you're not hitting the waves as you're going out. It's, it's a completely different place. I would imagine. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what kind of, they were telling us there. Like, you know, it's good, good for you guys out here today, but you don't want to come here in the winter. Like, but no, but I would just yeah. like to like, um, just feel those waves, feel the power of those waves breaking. And I mean, some of those places where we were on the beach, you would just be sitting on the beach and the, the, the surf would break very close to the, to the beach. You could just feel it, feel it throughout mm-hmm. your whole body. Like a, this yeah. incredible power in Hawaii. Like you, you get there, you got the volcanoes, you got the surf, you got the ocean, you've got the rivers and the waterfalls. Like it's just a, a magical place that you, one of the places where, kind of like Yellowstone National Park. I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but you get there and there's all this geothermal kind of thing. And it's just a, it, you're on a giant volcano. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't see it like a volcano in, in uh, Hawaii, but you're on top of this giant super volcano, one of the biggest ones in the world. Yeah. And you can feel the power there. It's indescribable, like, but you can feel it. Like, it's just this feeling that you have of like, wow, this place is incredible. I feel the same way in Hawaii. Like when I, every, both, all the times that I've been there, it's like, man, this powerful place. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, no, exactly. It's a, it's, I think it's the truest definition of raw nature. So you've got the rawest of everything, like you were saying, the ocean, the earth, the, uh, the lava, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I was lucky enough this year, actually, when the eruption happened on the big islands, I flew straight across. I went, I photographed the lava. I got as close as possible. And, and just hearing, uh, the sound of the rock shattering like glass yes. as it's being melted. It's like, and are you the, in the water or above the water for this? I was on land. So I was watching the, actually the, the lava stream come down from the volcano 
And the point at which I intercepted it was uh, where it was cool enough that it wasn't completely molten, but it was still hot enough to shift and break the rock. And I have some amazing pictures and videos, but it was top 10 greatest things I've ever seen in my entire life. That is, that's incredible. I mean, that Mm. kind of power isn't, I don't don't think that there's any much or very many things man-made that would, you know, give you the same kind of feeling of that kind of power. Um, I want to talk about sharks. Like when Mm. you're diving with sharks, there's, you know, tons of different kinds of sharks. I'm sure you've, you, you, you're familiar with all the different species. What, what's your favorite one to dive with? Um, I would have to say just for me being in Hawaii and spending so much time with them, the tiger sharks are hands down, like some of the best sharks to swim with totally misunderstood animal. Um, very, very mellow. Great to be around um, with people that are a little bit inexperienced. Uh, there's a real stigma around them, you know, just because of in Hawaii, they're kind of seen as the tropical great white. Mm. They're seen as the ones responsible for a lot of attacks or bites or fatalities over the years, um, which is true. But when you boil it down to um, like how frequent that's happening, it's probably around, you know, once every few years, which is not too high but in the water they're they're really amazing animals just to swim with um we have a few encounters every year between the months of around uh august to december and yeah every time i get in the water with them people are just blown away they're like this is the most beautiful animal i've ever seen this is amazing and those are the ones that really change people's perceptions because they're so large we get them from 10 to 14 feet. Wow. And around that 1500 pound mark is about where, where we're maxing out. And yeah, people are just blown away. It's like a mini Cooper coming towards you. And will you have like a single giant one like that? Or will there be multiples there on a, on a good day? Or what does that look like? Um, on a usual day, it'll just be a single shark. Um, those kind of sharks, they tend to send out a little bit of intimidation to the rest of the sharks. And so the usual sign that we've got one in the area is that everything just drops, Mm. just kind of leaves the area. Um, but we are starting to see multiple sharks coming in. Um, just because, you know, as whales populations are increasing again, that we've seen over the years, the tiger sharks, which predate on them. Um, or predate on the dead, they uh, will increase as well. There's more food out there. There's more sustainability for them to actually reproduce and uh, not be so competitive with each other. So we are generally seeing more sharks each year, which is good. Um, but yeah, it's pretty rare to get that multiple shark kind of swimming around. Yeah, there's a a, a lot of controversy around um, even just mentioning that there might be more sharks um, and, and as a fisherman, mm-hmm. and certainly uh, people fishing in that Jupiter area where you are are seeing mm-hmm. a, a big rise in sharks. But all throughout the entire state of Florida, there has been a, a, a rise in the number of sharks. But mm-hmm. if you talk to some uh, people that are shark advocates, they won't even consider that that's a possibility that Florida could be you know, on the rise and maybe other places are on the, on the fall. And we talk about this quite a bit on this podcast mm-hmm. because I think it's interesting. And to hear you say that you're having more sharks in Hawaii, I think is interesting. What do you think about the, the shark, shark population, um, certainly in Florida and Hawaii, and then maybe on a whole? Um, 
so my belief system is in in Hawaii, we have a very uh, special situation where sharks and fishing kind of go hand in hand. There's a strong community behind, or uh, sorry, strong cultural history behind the sharks, actually aiding the fishermen most of the time. And so we actually fully protect the sharks in Hawaii right now. So to kill a shark in Hawaii, to land a shark comes with a fine, just because that meat is not sold anywhere. It is purely for the trade of fins to to elsewhere. And so um, because of that protection law, we are seeing those increases, which should be a good thing. We've had a really good fishing year this year, and hopefully that means that um, that'll just continue to increase more sharks, healthier reef systems, and then healthier fish. Um, in Florida, I'm not too sure. I know that the, the laws are very different compared to Hawaii. I know that landing sharks is perfectly legal. Eating sharks is something that's done on a regular basis. I know um, a lot of people have always ate um, certain species of sharks on the East Coast, like the Makos and stuff like that. It's considered like a prize meat. Um, I'm not too sure. The way that I see it is uh, as long as there's more sharks in the environment, that is generally a positive thing for our ecosystems. If we see more sharks, we typically see more fish. We see see more or we see healthier fisheries. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course, if we have more people getting into fishing, if we get more people actively fishing out there on a daily basis, we're going to encounter more sharks. So it's hard to say for me. I think generally um, in a lot of places, a little bit more or less fortunate than us, we're still seeing heavy amounts of shark fishing, places like Indonesia, Mexico, that kind of area. And so in those areas, I would say that shark populations are on a decline just because of how heavily those guys are fishing it because right. they need to for necessity. Yeah. But, but that makes that makes total sense to me that you could have places where you're you're having uh, intense commercial fishing pressure and the shark populations are going down and other places where you're not having that. And the shark populations are going up, but but some people won't even consider that. That no, no, the sharks are on the decline, and mm. and they won't even they won't even have a, a conversation with you about that, um, which is I don't know, somewhat closed minded I would think, um, mm. but they could I'm be. All, yeah, I'm all, I'm always about the conversation. Like I I'm never a guy where it's like this is the right way or even in politics. Like I love hearing the other side. I'm not. I would say I'm very centered as an individual. I'm not left. I'm not right. But I have certain tendencies on both sides. Mm-hmm. Surely, uh, with the with the environmental stuff, I'm a little bit more like left leaning. But a lot of the other things, I'm like right leaning. But I, I believe, you know, the only way to move forward is just more data collection, more science, more people looking into these matters. I think Florida definitely could benefit from a lot more people going out there doing population studies looking at how the sharks are behaving looking how the sharks are interacting with fishermen but like you said i think it's always up for debate mm-hmm. um my whole goal is to see obviously increased shark numbers as a fisherman i've been to some areas in the world like uh, polynesia where we have really really great populations of um sharks especially reef species and I don't know, over there in terms of prize fish, we've got some of the biggest wahoo 
in the world, 100 pound Wahoo swimming around. And so those kind of correlations, they make sense to me. If you got a nice healthy reef, you got fish that are uh, spawning, populating correctly, that's going to just, you know, provide that much more food for those larger tier fish to feed on. Right. Then you have other places like uh, the Virgin Islands or something like that where you go and the water is unbelievably beautiful. You get in, the reef looks beautiful, mm-hmm. almost no fish and certainly yeah. no sharks, you know, yeah. like w- weird, like spooky mm-hmm. weird. Like mm-hmm. get in and you're just like, this should be, if this was the Keys, we would It'd be alive. It, it would be unbelievably alive, but the reef looks better than the Keys and the, the water looks better than the Keys. It's just incredibly clear and beautiful, but just very few fish. Um, weird place. So the tiger's your favorite. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you gave us a little bit about the personality of the tiger. Um, compare that to the bull shark and diving with a bull shark and, and what, what the difference is between the personalities and the, and the different species. I would say, um, that's definitely my area of least experience of bull sharks down here in Florida, just because, um, this is always like me traveling on vacation coming for a limited amount of time, but hopefully I should be spending more time here with the bull sharks and I'll learn more, but yeah, I did completely different personality type. You know, the bull shark, very muscular, extremely fast, can really turn on a dime. Um, from what I've seen from them though, they're very well behaved around humans to a point where it's actually kind of spooky. They're, uh, they're, waiting in turns they're lining up with my friend who's a professional guide and feeder and he's feeding them as if you would you know your your dogs in the morning giving them breakfast so it is it is interesting to see i could see them also being a little bit more difficult at times like we all know that story about bull sharks in the murky water with spear guns them reacting to spear guns stuff like that so i would say you have to be a little bit more on um alert with the bull sharks they definitely can change their temperament they definitely can change their energy levels very very fast and in that murky water they're going to be relying more on their ears more on those over sensory systems rather than seeing what you are mm-hmm. um so i think a lot of times people are that's when they're getting those bad interactions with the bull sharks they're getting bumped and stuff like that but i would say as long as my main message for people diving with them is as long as you're keeping that eye contact, you're keeping tabs on those sharks, you're, you're being aware of your situation just like you should be in any sort of dive situation, um, it lowers the chance of having a negative interaction massively. Of course, they're sharks. I don't, I don't think they're puppy dogs. They need to be given a lot of respect. But um, I think if you follow those kind of baseline principles of always keeping eyes on the shark, always trying to get that eye contact, you know, obviously swiveling around, checking your environment. If you are getting a close encounter, if you have something to create distance, whether that be a fin, whether that be a spear gun, you know, always kind of show your personal space and where your boundaries are at. I think you're going to do absolutely fine. Hmm. And think. and so, like, there's probably a ton of people that are listening to this that <clears throat> would would like to dive with sharks or some people mm. are saying, you know, I don't know why anybody would want to dive with sharks. Um, mm. And a lot of the fishermen above the water uh, no sharks in a certain way. And, and lots of guys I know wouldn't want to get in the water, but I'm just curious, like that sounds like, you know, some coaching that, that you would give your customers before you get in the water. Is that, is that kind of how you 
line it out. Like, what are the what are the things that you do and the things that you don't do, either in Hawaii with tigers or or here with with bulls or lemons or or whatever else you're going to dive for. What are the what are the things that keep you safe? So I think uh, just going back to what we're talking about, that's my main concern or my main point is the eye contact, looking around, paying attention. And then I think and then I know with, it, with the eye contact, though, what, what, mm-hmm. what are you looking for? Like when when you're making eye contact with the with the shark, I don't necessarily think that it's thinking I see your eye like, I mean, you got a mask mm-hmm. on and everything, but you're making mm-hmm. eye contact. And what is what exactly are you looking for with that shark? So, yeah, that's a good point. I'd say eye contact just so I get people to really fixate. Mm-hmm. But the the general um, thing I'm looking for is that body position. So as that body position is forward, you're showing that forward body position to the shark. It's coming in directly at you. You're facing head on. You're showing, hey, I'm a predator. I'm not scared of you. We're on equal footing. I'm not a piece of prey. I'm not swimming away from you. And that is signaling to them, hey, okay, maybe I should reconsider getting a little bit closer. If there's an animal that's kind of giving that front positioning, just like any animal, you know, whether it be bear, mountain lion, any sort of predator, they're going to have a second guess about getting any closer to you because they don't know what you have. You might be hiding a big set of claws, big set of teeth, and they're going to be analyzing that. Their main prerogative is safety for themselves. Mm -hmm. They're never going to put um, eating above their own personal safety. So even if they do get a food source, if they've taken huge damage getting it, that's not worth it for them. They're doing that accounting of what's worth what on a very fast basis, split seconds. Okay, mm-hmm. is this worth me coming up to and investigating and potentially taking a bite? So just having that strong forward position, kind of showing them that you're tracking them. Um, and then a huge one, especially with bull sharks, like I said, because they're not really relying on that eye contact when it's uh, murky water is splashing. Splashing is such a huge key to them that something's going on in the surface. I've literally been out there this week. I've done one big splash and watched all the sharks flip up and look towards me and come in and investigate just because that splashing indicates a dying injured animal, whether it be a fish or, you know, a dolphin on the surface. And they're really dialed into that sound. Mm-hmm. Another thing to watch out for, especially in areas with heavy spear fishing, is the sound of that spear gun. That that band going off, that click of the spear gun. Again, they've been hearing that noise and they know, okay, I hear that noise and a fish starts dying. So even just that noise now is going to kind of uh, incite a reaction. So those are the certain things that I'm watching out for. Other things, um, we see some sharks sometimes reacting to certain colored items when something is very flashy white looks like it's not really attached to the body stuff like fins or gloves you know i've seen sharks come up and investigate kind of check it out a little bit more white um white yeah just heavily contrasting colors so really neon yellow really neon white um that sort of stuff for whatever um reason just because it's so heavily contrasted Mm -hmm. it really catches their attention and so they want to come up and check that out and see if it isn't just a little piece of fish or something like that. Um, so those are the things I would kind of watch out for. And those are my main points. What about um, being together with a, with a group? Like when you're, I, I see the videos mm-hmm. of you 
doing the Tigers and stuff like that. It seems like there's, you know, three, four, five people kind mm-hmm. of close together. Is that mm-hmm. something that, that you advocate? I always think just diving in general, being in the water in general, having a buddy system is very, very important. I uh, I actually had an incident this year where I had a shallow water blackout, and if my buddy wasn't there, I wouldn't be here. Um, so just having people there to watch your back because we're all human. We're not going to make the perfect choice or be able to watch our own backs all the time. So just having other people there that can help you out, can watch over you a little bit because you might be dealing with a shark coming straight on with you and you don't see the one behind you coming directly in as well. Mm -hmm. So just having that buddy system in play, or if you can't have multiple people in the water, I always say, you know, you should never dive alone. It's just a easy way to end up in a bad situation. So yeah, definitely having those group situations, being together as a group, kind of not being spread apart so that if something does go wrong, you're 50 yards, a hundred yards from that other person. Now you've got to deal with a current or, you know, you're not able to get back to the boat that again, you're just asking for a bad situation. So I think always being in a buddy system or in a group kind of together, five to 10 yards between each other, that's the perfect situation for Mm -hmm. diving with anything um, and especially sharks. What happened in the shallow water blackout with you? Um, so the the short story is I was spearfishing, and uh, I basically was just feeling a bit under the weather, not feeling like myself. And I actually had, uh, um, I forget the medical terminology, but I had a split in the lung, and I started bleeding in my lungs. And uh, that was caused by just repetitive diving under pressure and trying to equalize under pressure and because of that when i came up to the surface on one of my dives the the way that the oxygen left my blood was a a lot faster because the blood already in my lungs and it caused a blackout without any sort of signs and uh, so i got to the surface and as i got to the surface i just immediately blacked out my buddy was right there grabbed me ripped the belt did all the right things uh shout out to chris (laughs) he uh he really helped me out. He uh, gave me some rescue breaths and got me to our float line, got me on the float. And luckily I was conscious by the time we got to the float line and we swam back in together and uh, went to the hospital. Wow. Yeah. So. Man, do you remember? <clears throat> do you remember that? Like, do you, do you, did you, did anything like that's a, near, very... that's a near death experience, right? Did you, did you have anything that happened or you see anything yeah, so I actually had a very, very vivid dream um, while I was out. Basically, I had the uh, life flash before your eyes a little bit. It wasn't as uh, interesting as that, but basically I was in the same spot where I was diving. But instead of Chris, it was me and my brother. And my really? brother was there with me, and he was helping me, and he was telling me, hey, there's these people trying to trying to drown you, and we have to get to shore. And we swam together. He's holding me up and I, I can't tell you who the people were. Maybe they were not really people, but objects coming yeah. towards me, trying to pull me down into the water. And, um, suddenly I kind of started to question my situation. Like, why am I here? Why is Teddy here? Why is, why is this happening? What's, what's going on? And then as I started to scramble to conclusions, I realized in my head, I was like, Oh, I blacked out. And as soon as I came to that conclusion, it was like the lights were turned back on. I came back to 
and I was there with Chris. So it was a really spooky situation, but definitely one I've wow. learned from. So, and, and what about your brother is, did you dive with your brother? Is that somebody that you had spent a lot of time in the water with, or, or was that a weird thing for him to be there, like in the water with you? It was a very strange thing. So my brother is actually back in the UK. He's back in London. Um, but obviously, you know, growing up first 18 years of my life, that was, that was my best friend in a way, you know, that was someone that I spent every significant, uh, portion of my life with. So whenever we were doing stuff, it was me and him, you know, mm -hmm. in every sport, we played sports all growing up. He was always like that older brother mentor. And so I think it just was my mind trying to figure out who this other person was helping me. And the automatic assumption was <clears throat> your brother's here. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I've, I've heard, um, kind of similar stories where people, um, are in a near death experience and then some, a family member of some sort, an uncle, a brother, a sister, somebody is, is all of a sudden there with them. And mm -hmm. that person could be, you know, still alive on, on earth, or it could be someone that had passed earlier, but have you, um, you know, in your community, there's a lot of people that have blackouts in, in your community, the diving mm. community. Have you heard similar stories like that of people just kind of. I've, I've heard different stories. Um, not too many that have been like mine, more just um, kind of deeper internal looks in their life. And then unfortunately in Hawaii, we have a lot of cases of people not making it. So in the community, it's definitely kind of seen as, as like, I was a lucky one who got out alive. Mm. Um, just a week after that, we had two divers, older experienced divers. They were night diving together. And the way that they were found was the, the flashlights. Someone saw their flashlights out there for hours uh, from their home on the beach. And yeah, both of them, I think, unfortunately, maybe one of them blacked out his buddy was trying to save him. He ran out of energy as well and, and passed as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, no, there's a, there's a few people that have, have told me similar stories. Um, but yeah, over times people completely can't remember it, or maybe the trauma of the situation has just made them forget. Um, I got, <laughs> I wasn't really like that. I was like, no, I need to remember this. I need to use this as a good building block for the future and, and remember all my, kind of safety safety protocols that I need to take from this. Obviously, I'm a water professional. I need to just get back in the water right away. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that. Like, what was that yeah. like to, to, I mean, there was never a fleeting moment of, whoa, I don't know. I, I felt, I honestly felt very bad for my uh, partner, Chris. My partner, Chris, we were, we were out there because he just had gone for a breakup. This is supposed to be his, like, get your mind off things. And, um, I basically blacked out on him and caused him a lot of distress. And so I think in my mind, the way I got over it was, I was like, oh, it's so much worse to Chris. He had to deal with that. I just fell asleep and woke back up and everything was fine for him. He was, he didn't know what was going to happen. He went into full survival mode. He was giving me, you know, rescue breaths and doing all the correct things to keep me alive. And so I think the way I got over my trauma was like, oh, it was way worse for him. Uh, he's just, he's the one who's got to deal with it. I got to make it up to Chris. I got to be a better diver for Chris. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I didn't let myself kind of fall into that trap of being afraid of the water. 
I, uh, as soon as I was good enough, you know, I started taking those baby steps back out and really. How many days was um, that? So I was in the hospital for about four days just cause I ended up getting pneumonia from the water in my lungs and other stuff. And after that, I think it was about a week, about a week. And then I got back into the water, not doing any diving or anything like that. Just swimming, went out there with a friend of mine, just, you know, kind of, uh, sat in the water swam about a little bit, got back out and then just started building from that point. Yeah. And yeah. then, then holding your breath. Like I would imagine that even, <clears throat> even a little bit after having mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the problem in the lungs. And, and so now that you know all of what the problem was and, and you know, what, what caused this, how do you prevent that in the future? I think just, you know, it was, it was things in my own mentality and, you know, I was believing I was invincible in a way, you know, I do this all the time. I'm such a, you know, I've been in the water for over 10 years, almost every day. These rules that apply to everybody don't apply to me. And so I was going out there. I'd worked all day in the water. I've been holding my breath all day. I was exhausted. I was on two hours of sleep just because of um, waking up so early in the night before not getting great rest and just, oh, I didn't need to worry about any of that. It was just a little bit of ignorance. And so now moving forward, I really do check myself and put myself into those those protocols like, hey, uh, you know, you need to do this training. You need to do this cardio. You need to do this conditioning. You need to work on your breathing. You need to get the correct amount of sleep. I think overall it's helped me push myself in the right direction in life in general. Like you need to do these things that maybe you don't want to do in the time. You need to get the work done so that you – don't have to deal with these situations or you're doing everything correctly. And um, that's the biggest lesson I took from it. Just, you know, really understanding what my job is as an ocean professional and how I need to train myself, prepare myself, and then actually implementing it, not being lazy and, you know, pushing it to the side because I don't feel like doing it. So it's a good transition. Uh, ben suggested we go to the hot seat. So either or questions, you just answer them as fast as you can. And uh, helps us to get to know you a little bit better and help the audience to get to know you a little bit better. So you ready? Okay. Yeah, ready. Chocolate or vanilla? Uh, chocolate. Drive or fly? Mm, fly. Text or call? Call. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. Something you like to do out of the water? Ooh. Train. Gym. One million now or 10 million later? 10 million later. <laughs> Would you have a reptile as a pet? Of course. <laughs> Favorite place you've spearfished? Ooh. Mexico. Favorite non-fishing or non-diving location you visited? Ooh. Zion National Park, Utah. Good choice. One food you love? Ooh. I'm going to go with hibachi. Okay. One food you will not eat? I eat everything. <laughs> I'm, I'm real. I'm not picky at all. Omnivore. Would you rather walk with bears or swim with sharks? I've done both. I know. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, wow. That's a good one. I got to say sharks. I got to give the sharks my, my love. Okay. One thing that scares you? Hmm. A normal life. <laughs> I like. Good answer. One thing that people may not know about you? Hmm. Oh, I'm pretty open. So I would have to say, 
I'm losing my accent, but I am English. A lot of people think I'm Australian yeah. or South African. Yeah. It sounds a little Australian there. Yeah. Okay. So English. Uh, what's one thing that you have changed your mind on in the last three years? Ooh. That is a really hard one. Um, I would have to say change my mind on. This sounds silly, but I've always wanted a truck and I was always an F-150 guy and now I'm a Toyota guy. I think that's the Hawaii <laughs> me. Yeah. Okay. That's that's good. Uh, a movie that makes you laugh? That Brothers. Me too. Okay. Yeah. And then we got a couple of questions from social media. So have you ever speared a big eye tuna? I have not. Not yet. Have What's the closest call with a shark while spearfishing? Hmm. Oh. I had my buddy in the water, first time in the water, telling him about spearfishing. I shoot a uh, milkfish, and uh, that's like a Hawaii thing, really big fish, nice fish. Two black tips came out of nowhere and completely annihilated this thing in front of my buddy who's first time in the water. And he was holding one of the other fish. And I've never seen someone so, like, jaw dropped, eyes wide open. So that was probably the, the spookiest spearfishing situation. Not for me, but just I was like worried about him. Yeah. Biggest fish you've ever speared? I shot probably a 60 or 70 pound GT in Hawaii. Nice. Yeah. Stoned nice. it. So didn't destroy all my gear or rip my gun. Yeah, so. well, a 60 very, pounder. Uh, yeah. So I've been to um, uh, Christmas Island and Australia and fish for both GTs and milkfish over there. So I'm familiar with both those species. What is a milkfish good to eat? Yeah. So you can, it's a soft flesh, uh -huh. but what you do in Hawaii is you spoon it out and you make create a cake like out a, of it. Yeah. Exactly. That's the same thing they do with a bonefish. You know, you'll, uh, they'll bake it and then they'll mm -hmm. sc scoop it out and then make like a fish cake out mm -hmm. of it and then fry that. Um, yeah. it's supposed to be really good, but like in Christmas Island, um, Inside of the of the atoll, they used to um, net net the uh, the milkfish. And mm -hmm. then when they learned about how much people will pay to go over there and go bone fishing, they've kind of stopped doing that. But obviously, when mm -hmm. they were netting the milkfish, they were also netting bonefish, and so it was mm -hmm. it was damaging. But some of those milkfish are massive. I mean, oh, they just, get huge. They yeah, are, they're just a wild fish, and they just mm -hmm. when you have one, you know, they they almost look like it's totally photoshopped. Yeah, kind of yeah, like, a, kinda like a, a queen snapper, you know, like a queen yeah. snapper looks like looks like a giant goldfish that somebody has like photoshopped on there. And you see if you've never seen one of those before, you see somebody holding it. You're like, that's not real. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, not real. Exactly. The, same no, the thing first time the I saw one. Yeah, no, the first time I saw them, uh, I was actually I was spearfishing and um, I had a school of 20 of them all swim past me. And they were circling and they had their mouths open feeding on the yes. uh, material. And I was like blown away. I was like, do I even shoot one of these things? Like, do what? what's going on? But yeah, no, they're a crazy looking fish, like big googly eyes. Um, they will no, yeah, eat a fly, like a, a little fly. That And some people have, uh, I think some of the guides, the early people to ever f figure out how to catch them. They, one guy had like green shoelaces and he was like, mm -hmm. well, this is the closest thing. And they took a little piece of his shoelace and put it on there and, you know, and made a little fly out of his shoelace. And then, then they're all like 
fighting over the rest of his shoelace. Yeah. Like, no, no, I gotta have this. <laughs> tell me about yeah. um tell me about some of these trips you've taken. Like Ben, you might want to pull up his uh his Instagram there of, of uh Mag Bay. Like that's where you mm. just were? Yeah. Unbelievable, no, man. I mean, you're you're showing me things from under the water, but I've seen, you know, so many people fishing there where just the marlin and the bait balls and, and but what you're showing is like this whole other perspective that I haven't really seen, man. So yeah. he, Ben will have your Instagram up if you want to pick some uh pick pick a, a post and and you know talk about talk that about it a can. little bit. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean um yeah, if you want to I mean obviously the first the first thing that comes to mind when I think about Mag Bay is, is the Marlin and that's probably what your viewers are used to as well like the striped Marlin run there with the sardines is one of the most insane things that I've ever seen. Yeah, a few photos from this is actually um 2 years ago so when the ocean conditions were a little bit different. And yeah, I mean that's got to be one of the top predators on the planet just in everyone's eyes and they're so Most... lit up around these bait balls i mean i don't think you could ever get a more beautiful picture of mm -hmm. i mean that, that is incredible like yeah that is such a cool picture of that that marlin coming through that bait ball um, yeah now we we have found as as we're diving and and you know filming for the television show we found that the swordfish is is very dangerous fish to fish with. Did you mm. feel like that with the marlin, with these marlin, or any marlin that you're that you're with? Do they, do, are they I, in your uh, in your opinion, are they dangerous to to swim with? So, uh, of course, I felt that um, when I first got in, when I first started interacting with them, I was so hesitant. I was like, "This is a fish with a giant knife on its face, uh, swimming at seventy miles per hour. It doesn't seem like a good idea at all." Um, but I was so impressed by just how precise they are. I mean, these guys are sparing a sardine this big yeah. out of school and hitting it almost every single time. And they know exactly what they're going for. And it was actually a case of me having to back away from them and, and stop intimidating them. Because if you come anywhere near that bait ball, a lot of these shots are taken at a a longer vocal range but if you come near that bait ball they'll back right off mm. so it's more a case of us giving them the space to work rather than oh it's absolute chaos we got sword or bills flying everywhere and you're almost getting speared there was a few times where i felt a little bit intimidated but after a while you realize that these guys are just dialed into a different level of reaction speed they're probably working in slow motion compared to us so it's 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 actually insane to see but the funny thing is you know talking about them and how many marlins we saw last year this year because of the el nino yeah we saw a completely different flip of things what used to be you know marlin dominated bait balls is now thousands of mahi mahi put more mahi pick, mahi pick that, one of those videos that you think is what you're talking about like is it that one there that um we could do that one or we could do the one the the picture of cj that's the picture that he actually uh, took of him that went pretty viral, but you can just see like how many mahi are just flying through this area and just actively feeding. There was bait fish all around, you know, attached to the boat running off. This is one of the bait balls that um, we would we would stumble upon. So you can just see how many individual fish, individual good sized fish, are 
hanging out and that was all over you could go into a zone where there's multiple bait balls like that happening in a mile and there's hundreds of thousands of mahi all there and we were shooting you know good fish 40 45 pound fish there was 50 60 pounders swimming out there biggest biggest mahi i've ever seen probably the biggest mahi i ever will see um so it's just truly like probably one of the best places on earth to see high level predatory fish the the water clarity here is like what kind of visibility do you think you were having in some of these situations probably 80 to 100 feet you know as good as as good as hawaii better than hawaii like i would say there was definitely uh as good as probably not better Uh but we were having some locations where we were really in the blue um Especially when we came across, I don't know if uh, Ben can see, but that video to the to the left with the with the whale. Yes. So we had these large brides whales coming through, and just destroying the bait balls. I mean, these things are maxing out sixty feet. Um, again, very very cautious, just waiting for the, the right time. And as soon as everybody was away from the bait ball, just completely engulfing about half the bait ball this one not not too good at it he he missed in that uh situation but over over whales which were a little bit more experienced it seemed like we're just destroying thousands of fish at a time what's your experience swimming with with whales like that so that was uh my first time with the bride's whales so to give a little bit of kind of uh, clarity the bride's whales you know they're similar to a blue whale they're almost kind of like a dwarf blue and um they were definitely different actually in the shot i was so scared because i didn't realize the tail was coming right here so again good that i had people around watching me and i was a little bit more aware because i kind of moved out the way at the last second i didn't realize his body was going to flail up like that before he's going to go through the through the bait ball but um yeah these guys again just you know gentle giants coming in uh, really timing it avoiding people avoiding um bumping into anyone and then obviously we 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 saw some humpbacks out there and humpbacks i've had some experience with those guys are you know fairly common in mexico hawaii uh french tahiti and yeah really really amazing to swim with this this situation had a newborn baby just kind of relaxing at the surface kind of hopped into you don't you don't see like whales aren't like protective like you certainly certainly wouldn't want to be with a grizzly bear and cub in that situation like so a whale is not protective of their young like that's not a dangerous situation or it is a dangerous i don't know i think being with any wild animal you know could potentially be a dangerous situation you have to be cautious you have to be respectful you know i had guests that were getting too well, uh, not purposely, but might, you know, drift a little bit too close, go and grab those people, pull them back, give the space, you know, they could do a lot of damage. But overall, what I say to people is when you're out there, you'll be so massively surprised at how much nothing really wants to get involved with you. Nothing wants to really hurt you. Um, they're, they're basically just minding their own business, just drifting through. Um, even with a, you know, animal of that size, they don't really see you as, as something that they want to, necessarily mess with they're they're just looking to pass through um meet with other whales kind of interact with other species but yeah with us they're the most that they're going to do is is kind of swim down and and try and avoid us Hmm. wow look at that 
But yeah, this is just Those a the video. Tigers? These are the tigers, and this is more of a, you know, a showcase of what they what they can be like. You You're know, just gonna a, stick a... your head in there. Is that you? <laughs> that is uh, my coworker uh, Sava. He's a very talented diver. This guy's a you know amazing free diver. He's uh, over two hundred feet, you know, in terms of depth on a single breath. He's spent years here in Florida, Mexico, Hawaii. Um, and that was just to showcase, you know, that these sharks, although we want people to, you know, obviously love them and, and feel safe with them, they're not puppy dogs at the same time. I think a lot of people get this image and what annoys a lot of people is they're they're pushing this image that like sharks are these perfectly safe, like let me rub it on the belly, but they do have a predaceous side. They mm -hmm. are capable predators. We need to be aware of them. As much as I want people to enjoy sharks and go out and swim with sharks, and kind of have these experiences you have to understand that this is a predator as well just like with the grizzly bears up in alaska yeah, I that saw I those. Some time. tell me about the Ooh. grizzly bears what did, yeah, what were so, you doing up there and why 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 do you go from what i mean I, I love grizzly bears and and i think that they're like my favorite land animal just they're oh, also yeah. my least favorite land animal to see like you yeah. know you know what i mean like i have a incredibly healthy respect for grizzly bears i was telling you about elk hunting uh with my sons every year and and mm -hmm. i mean we are in the epicenter of grizzly country and uh that one that is eating that salmon looks like arnold schwarzenegger of grizzly bears look at that thing man Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I was lucky enough to, so I work with a collection of very talented individuals. Um, we kind of are all really good friends. We met through the industry. So um, me, Tanner, Israel, um, Cooper, and we all work in the same space, which is, you know, wildlife photography and uh, especially, you know, focusing on predators. And uh, Cooper, um, you see his, his handle right there, Cooper Lost. He um, spent the last seven years being a pilot and a fly fishing guide in Alaska. And so he, you know, he came out to me in Hawaii. I took him with the tiger sharks. I showed him around and he was uh, kind enough to really give me the inside scoop and take me up to Alaska. And we did a little boys trip. We're going to plan to do it again this year and really be out there near Katmai National Reserve um, and really just get close and, and observe these bears. Obviously, all this imagery is taken through very long range um, uh, camera equipment. So, mm -hmm. you know, 400 to 500 millimeter lenses. But still, when you're 100, 150 yards away from a grizzly bear, it's it's still an intimidating sight, you know what I mean? You're still yeah. feeling that pressure, yeah. yeah. Um, but luckily, we were in the heart of, you know, salmon breeding season. There was a whole, you know, array of food for them to eat from the salmon to the blueberries on the ground. And these guys were completely, you know, mellowed out. They were um, feeding up. They're in their probably their the biggest and bulkiest stage of the season before they go into that long hibernation. So I mean, those bears saw, are definitely a little bit different than the ones in Montana that are not feasting oh, yeah. on salmon, <clears throat> but mm -hmm. still, I mean, they are, I mean, that's like walking Capable. into a professional football locker room compared to a high, you know, a, a grammar school locker room. Like the size of those bears is just astounding. Um, oh no, it's amazing. It was, it was really humbling stuff. I mean, I think he did it a little bit because I took him with the tiger sharks and he was like, you know, obviously that was pretty scary for me. I kind of felt my adrenaline spike and I was like, oh, really? Like, uh, kind of, 
you know, not that I've lost the edge, but I've become more comfortable with it. And he's like, okay, I'm going to take you into my environment with my animals and you're going to really, you know, see how you feel with that. But we did everything the right way, you know, walking around bear spray. We had a, a loaded handgun just in case and, you know, obviously giving the bears the distance, but that was definitely hands down, probably one of the best trips I've ever been on in my life. And well, Alaska is another one of those places, <clears throat> you know, I was telling you Yellowstone and, and Hawaii, you feel the power mm-hmm. there. You feel the power in Alaska too. Like it is a, it is a powerful place with you're in the wilderness. Like even if you're in the city, like the wilderness is just outside of that. You could see, a. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I love Alaska too. It's, it's, it's a great place. I was there last summer and, it was it was awesome. Loved that place. Oh no, it's truly truly one of the most beautiful places I've been. That was my first time to Alaska, and I can't wait to go back. I mean, again, I feel like like you were saying, these places that we're talking about or we're, we're really interested in going to or really interested in exploring to, they're they're kind of the rawest place places on the planet. If you can find somewhere which is not really uh, explored or there's not a lot of human life there, you tend to find these crazy uh amounts of wildlife or just situations or just kind of raw earth raw earth environments that you can't really find anywhere else yeah so one of the things that you uh mentioned in the in the hot seat questions was Mm. something that you're afraid of is having a a, an ordinary life so you you certainly do not have an ordinary (laughs) life and and i don't see it happening anytime soon but where did this this sense of adventure this 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 yearning for for this extraordinary life come from um i would have to say it it's kind of always the same situation just from um you know growing up my my grandfather he was uh you know world war ii vet he always wanted to do certain things but never had the opportunity to and he just kind of instilled in me this uh kind of amazement for the natural world every birthday every christmas he would buy me you know national geographic books he would buy me um planet earth films and we'd watch them together and we'd discuss things and that's where that inspiration started i grew up in england i grew up in manchester not that sort of environment there was always that kind of yearning to go and explore these things so i think not being able to do that in my younger years really just kind of grew this obsession, grew yeah. this this kind of drive to get out there and, and experience these things because I was always watching it through a TV screen or reading it through a book. And that sort of, uh, I guess, um, holdback or that tension really started to build. And then as soon as I got the chance to, you know, I just fully went with it, fully tried to make it my life and luckily you know the stars aligned and it worked out and now uh hopefully trying to keep it going forever yeah it's so cool you know there's a a phrase that i talk about here a lot is your your greatest weakness usually or can turn out to be your greatest strength and in a lot of ways you might think that your greatest weakness is that you grew up in Manchester and you didn't have a background of of spearfishing and diving and, and you had never been to these places but on the other hand like you say that that drives this obsession like as opposed to someone who maybe grew up with it and of course that person can become you know a, a super waterman or or whatever as well but a lot of people you know it's just like oh it's just another thing we do right mm-hmm. okay 
And, and then a few of those people will develop this obsession where most of the people that grow up in a city think, oh, it's kind of cool. I'll just watch it on TV. But a few of those people develop this obsession. And that was kind of my, my story with, with fishing. I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I didn't have any ocean experience whatsoever. And that's all I wanted. Like that was, that was it. I wanted to catch these, these fish that I had heard about and read about in, in, you know, field and stream magazine and things like that. And I always just thought about that. Like it's the inexperience that, that turns out to be your greatest strength eventually, because you feel like I have so much to catch up on. I have so, you know, I have to work so much harder than everybody else. And then you look up, you know, 10 years later and you're like, huh, how did did I, I get, I mean, like I've done now more than these people that have lived here their entire life on Hawaii and they've never done what, what I'm doing every week. Right. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like you ever think about it it like that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's like, it's a hungry dog metaphor, right? Like if you have that, that fighter or that, that person who has to kind of work for it or doesn't have that option, you know, doesn't have that availability, they're always going to be that much more hungry to get it. Like everyone who grew up in Hawaii, they're so lucky to have these things available to them from a young age. But also, like you said, it's, it's, it can be a negative because it's on your doorstep. It's never going away. It's never going to be that that day where you can't go out spear fishing or you can't go out and do these things, and so you you kind of like lose that interest or you lose that drive. Um, and I think it's a very human thing as well. We always want what we can't have. Yeah. So being from those environments where it wasn't available to us, that in a way I think for a number of years motivated me in the rest of my life. It was like I'm going to build towards this. I'm going to find my way over to Florida, and then I'm going to find my way over to Hawaii. And that was what was pushing me so hard and eventually got me to that point. So yeah, no, hundred percent. That's, that's kind of how I see it yeah, as well. That's cool. Another thing that you mentioned in the, in the um, <clears throat> hot seat was that the thing that you like to do out of the water is train. Um, so as you're training, like I'm imagining that you're, you're training with spearfishing and holding your breath and swimming in mind, but I don't know, like what, what mm. kind of training do you do? So uh, I've always had training in my life. It's been like uh, my number one of de-stressing. My brother is also, he's a master's degree student in uh, kinesiology. So he works in the fitness space. He's always been into, you know, lifting and sports and functional fitness. So a lot of it comes from, you know, him. He's always giving me ways to, to train for the things that I love to do when I'm not in the water. So a lot of that revolves around doing functional fitness, you know, CrossFit type. Like, yeah, exactly. So he works in that space. Um, not hundred percent CrossFit because the translation's not always there, mm-hmm. but a lot of that, like building that engine cardiovascular. Um, I love getting under some weight. I love, you know, doing the, the compound lifts, a little bit of bench, a little bit of squats, all that kind of stuff. So, um, I think, yeah, it's a mixture of both, you know, I, I do the conventional lifting, the conventional kind of like bodybuilding just to keep my head on a even keel. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of the other stuff is um, definitely that breath work. So building that engine, doing a lot of cardiovascular so that in the water, I'm not losing energy as fast. I'm not struggling as much with like filling my lungs 
they they have that that stretch in them especially after my accident my whole kind of recovery process was was on building that stuff um but yeah the 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 over part of my training would go into the actual static breath work. Yeah. So well, I'm interested in that too. Like mm-hmm. the first breath work you're talking about is like you're, you're going to dry land training on, on a treadmill or rowing machine or ski erg or bike or, or running or something like that. Right. That, like mm-hmm. just, just standard cardio. And then mm-hmm. as you move into the, to the breath work for specifically for static breath hold breath holds, what, what are you doing? Ex- describe some of what you do there. <clears throat> so basically, uh, a lot of the stuff I'm doing is just going through different ways of stretching out my lungs and uh, kind of testing myself on my dryline capabilities. So I actually worked with um, a company or should I say a program to do my spearfishing or not spearfishing for free diving um, certifications. So I worked with a company called Ada, my good friend. Mitch, he's an instructor there, and he basically just trained me and taught me through all these different styles of um, moving your lungs in a way which helps them to kind of gain more volume. Hmm. Um, so I'm I'm blanking on the the specific names. They are uh, kind of I think they're Indian names. Uh, a lot of them are to do with like yoga, like Hatha but, yoga. Mm-hmm. Hatha, I know Hatha is one that, that that they do a lot of, uh, and Kundalini. Uh, Kundalini, yoga, yeah. Yoga, where you're doing a lot of breath work. I, I got into, um, you know, the Wim Hof method about six years ago, and, I was, and, and it's basically forty giant breaths in, mm. and then you then you hold on an empty lung. Mm-hmm. But and and it's very good, and it translates very good to to CrossFit and um, to to the training. But I don't know how well it trains, it, how well it it uh, crosses over into actual breath holds. And I have this other app on my phone that's called an apnea app, and it has like Mm. a CO2 table and an Mm. O2 table, and there's different ones. And sometimes I'll do those too, but I'm always curious with somebody that's, um, you know, like you that that focuses on this, like what actually helps you to learn how to hold your breath longer. So the the Winhof I do use, but I uh, usually use it for like uh, ice bath. I do Mm -hmm. I do active recovery. but I do. I really try to stay away from it with free diving. So the problem with the Winhof is because of the way that you're breathing, you're expelling a lot of your CO2, yes. and the CO2 is that's that's the most important part about free diving. We don't want to purge CO2 because that's what leads to blackouts. Yeah. The CO2 in your system is what's going to tell you, hey, I need to breathe. I need to come up to the surface. It's how you get those convulsions and how you kind of feel that pressure. And that's really important. A lot of people are trying to remove that. That's the worst thing you can do because it's actually dangerous. So I try and completely get people away from uh, Winhof. It's yes. a really great, great breathing technique for other aspects of life, like training, mm-hmm. like you said, in functional fitness and also doing other things. But in terms of free diving, it can be quite dangerous. So um, a lot of the friends that I have, they come to me and they're like, hey, I've, I've been really improving my spirit diving when I learned Winhof. And I have to basically like break them down again and, right. and, and, and realign them. So they're actually doing almost like the opposite. You've taken those nice deep breaths in, you're calming your system down. Um, you're going for those CO2 tables, you're going for those O2 tables and learning how to breathe the correct way. Um, so in, instead yeah. of the 40 big deep breaths in and out, what, mm-hmm. what would you, what would you do? 
So what I tell people when starting off is uh, the biggest thing is relaxation. Mm -hmm. So becoming comfortable in the water, getting um, that nice, slow heart rate and how we achieve that is I would say to start off, you want to do four seconds in, eight seconds out. So basically we're going to take our inhalation breath and we're going to double it on our exhalation. Mm -hmm. So whatever you feel comfortable and what feels the most relaxing for you, for some people that might be four seconds in, you know, eight seconds out. Other people that have that larger capacity, they're a little bit more cardiovascular, they're going to feel more relaxed doing those higher numbers. So six seconds in, 12 seconds out, that kind of stuff. And moving all the way to like, you know, eight or 10 seconds in and double, double those times. And by doing that, you're actually bringing your uh, resting heart rate down. And then once you get it down to a point where you feel nice and relaxed, basically the same kind of point you get right before you go into bed, but still conscious and still like, you know, aware, just, just feeling good. Um, we're going to take that nice, deep final breath and then hold it there. And it's really important to practice all that statically so you can feel your body go through the motions and get that get that reaction. You're going you're gonna to start feeling those convulsions. You're going to start getting used to those convulsions. You're going to get used to um, when you actually need to breathe and when is the correct time to come up. So when, when you feel those convulsions, and first of all, there's been a ton of people uh, die using mm -hmm. the Wim Hof method in water, right? So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it is not to be done in water. And when mm -hmm. I first started going through his course, he said specifically, do never do this around water. But mm -hmm. somewhere along the line, that message got misinterpreted or whatever, and people are actually doing it in the water. And it's a terrible idea. And like 20 people have died doing that. So do not do that in the water. And even uh, even on these breath holds that we're talking about now, I would imagine that you're, you would advocate dry land training, not around water at mm -hmm. all when you're first starting this, but, um, when you're feeling those convulsions, um, and let's just say you're dry land training, you're just, you're just practicing holding your breath, just like you just went through. Mm -hmm. Um, like, is that something to be concerned about or do you work your way through that? And that's where you actually get the really long breath hold. I think as you, you become more comfortable with it, you, you start to feel them, not less and less, but they, they tend to, you, you understand that that's a normal part of your body reacting. Mm -hmm. And then once you feel comfortable with those reactions, then you can actually use them. Like, hey, okay, I started my first convulsion. How long until my second convulsion? Because that first convulsion, when you start off, that's going to exert a reaction. Maybe that's going to spike your adrenaline. Maybe now your heart rate's going a little bit faster. Now you're using more oxygen and that next convulsion is going to come a lot sooner. But as you get more comfortable, you're still going to feel those con convulsions, but you're going to understand why it's happening and you're going to be more relaxed about it happening. And so that's where you get those, you know, longer breath holds. And then as you get more comfortable in the water, you're going to be using less and less oxygen just because everything's going to loosen up. Right. Your hands aren't going to be as tight on the gun. Um, maybe, you know, your shoulders are, will drop and be nice and relax. All those little pieces, which we don't even consciously think about, they're, they're using massive amounts of energy, massive amounts of oxygen. And as you become more comfortable in that environment, that's all just going to drop and you're going to feel way better being down there. I also think it's, it's really amazing to see how our body adapts in the hunting environment. You've probably seen this in fishing and bow fishing, but just how dialed in people get. Mm -hmm. With me in spearfishing, 
you know, if I'm doing a regular free dive and I'm in my head, I'm thinking about it. Okay. I got to get down to this certain depth and I've got to stay down here or um, I'm training actively in the water. It's a lot more difficult to get those longer times because it's just me and the breath hold. Right. When you get a fish, especially a nice fish and you're in that zone and you're tracking that fish and you're hunting, you just see how your body just shifts and all of a sudden you're down there for two minutes and you haven't even realized. That's and it's just cool. because you got into that, that hunter mentality and you started to kind of a, adapt a little bit and become a little bit more efficient at all these movements without even realizing it. Yeah. That's super um, cool. Yeah. That's, I, I think spearfishing is one of the, one of the coolest. I just, I love it. You know, I like hunting on land as well, mm -hmm. but the, the hunting in the water I think is, is super cool. Cause yeah. it, like when you're doing anything like that lobster, we do a lot of lobstering in the, in the mm -hmm. keys and, and uh, you know, you get down there and, and you know, really it's a v incredibly brief thing. Like mm -hmm. when you're deer hunting in the woods, you're out there for eight hours, mm -hmm. right? Like it could, it could happen anytime. And sometimes you see one coming from a long way away, but when you're actually spearfishing, I mean, you're only capable, let's just say the, longest breath holds around or, you know, six, seven, eight minutes maybe, but most mm -hmm. people are like 30 seconds to, to two minutes mm -hmm. and you're going to go get it done in 30 seconds. Like, I think that's super cool, but over it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, it doesn't seem like that when you're doing it, it, mm -hmm. it feels like, wow, this was like a whole day of hunting in the woods, but it really, mm -hmm. you know, took you 30 seconds. Yeah, cool. exactly. No, it's, 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 it's definitely a crazy style of hunting. And obviously I don't have too much experience on the other side of things like hunting for deer and you elk out in the wild. Yeah. I'm definitely going to be pushing myself. That's my next chapter, but yeah, no, exactly. When you, when you're down there, it's kind of like time slowed down a little bit just because you only have that limited amount of time. So every movement, every reaction has to be on the, on the money, so to speak. You have to do everything kind of perfectly in that tiny, tiny chasm of time. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it definitely is a unique style of hunting in that way. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I know you got, you're probably going shark diving today. I would imagine doing something. Uh, not today. I'm actually flying back to Hawaii tomorrow. So, oh, so probably Wednesday will be the next time I'm in the water with the sharks. All right. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad we got this squeezed in and, uh, we've got, um, your video up on all of the podcast, um, pages tom Rowland podcast uh the wild one outdoors and all kinds of other ones but uh man i loved getting to know you a little bit and having you on the podcast and maybe i can get over there to to hawaii again and uh if i do i'll look you up that's for oh, sure oh yeah absolutely i'd love to take you out with the sharks yeah. we definitely have to have some pictures and videos of tom Rowland out in the wild <laughs> with some tiger sharks that yeah would be, that would be so be cool. really cool that would be so yeah. cool well danny we'll be following you from a distance until then um, but go to, uh, to check out his, uh, his Instagram. It's absolutely incredible. We'll put it in the show notes and, uh, man, good luck. I don't know where your next trip goes, but after you get back, we'll do another podcast. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. All Appreciate right. it. Thank you. See you. See ya.